Welcome to season four of the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, with your host, India Lorick Wilmot. I am thrilled to be in conversation with my sister and dearest friend, Natasha Gordon Chippenberry. Natasha is a professor of African diasporic literature and the author of the book, Representation and Black Womanhood, The Legacy of Sarah Barton. And it's a seminal text that is now required reading throughout South Africa's universities. Her writing has been published across several venues, including Essence Magazine and in Tico Times as part of the monthly series called Musings from an Afro-Costa Rican. Natasha is a senior co-editor with Dr. Eduardo Polino of the Afro-Latino Diaspora's book series from Palgrave, where they prioritize the voices of emerging Afro-Latino or Latine scholars. Her current writing focuses on slavery and the legacy of Afro-descendants in Latin America. In addition, Natasha is the founder and host of the annual Tengo Said Writing Retreats in Costa Rica, which is an exclusive week-long gathering of global BIPOC writers in Costa Rica. And from that, i like to share that we are collaborating on a forthcoming edited volume that amplifies and celebrates the voices and personhood of Tengo Said Writer Retreat participants. Notwithstanding, I am excited to say, too, Natasha has a new book, her highly anticipated debut historical fiction novel entitled Finding La Negrita, published by Jaded Ibis Press, which is available this month. We are in for a treat, eager to learn more about the impetus for the new book, Finding La Negrita, about an African-descended expat writer's life, and what's next. So welcome, Natasha. Hello. I am so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on. You're kicking off and you're setting the tone right for season four. I'm I'm so eager to walk with you and learn a bit more about your journey of belonging to Blackness thus far. So are you ready? I am ready. All right. Let's get into it. Right about now. Act one. Call to adventure. This is a breakdown. Okay, Natasha. So like me, you are a Brooklyn girl forever, right? So you were born and raised near to Costa Rican Panamanian parents, along with your siblings, and then moved to Costa Rica eight years ago with your husband and two children. But then before that, you've been a world traveler and expat, living and thriving in various places across the world, thereby your living in the world has afforded you a certain global sensibility and perspective about the African descendant experience. So as an academic and a writer, what or who inspired you to do the work you do today? That's a fantastic question. And I think I have two answers for that. So the first one is essentially the story that I always tell, right? So when you're young, and I was about five or six, you know, you have relatives, adults who say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, that's the dumbest question ever. Like, <laughs> like really, that's a lot of pressure. However, I think that 
young people, you know, from the mouth of babes, right? I mean, in many ways, they speak their truth and then they spend their entire life going back to that truth. So I remember the truth. When I was young and I was asked by a cousin, what do you want to be when you grow up? One of the things I said was that I wanted to be a writer. And I was very clear about that. And that was because as a child of immigrant parents from Costa Rica and Panama via Jamaica, right? So their family sort of had multiple migrations from the Caribbean into Costa Rica to work on both the railroad and to work on the canal zone in Panama. I think when my parents married and came to New York, in terms of adjusting, they really understood very clearly that the way for the first generation child of immigrants, essentially, education was the key. My mother is a retired Spanish professor, and it was very clear from the beginning we had a culture of going to the public library because we were not out. My siblings and I were homebound. You know, my parents did not let us go sit outside or engage on the streets of Brooklyn, do or die bed You know, I lived down the street from Biggie. So they didn't understand that sensibility. And many of our summer vacations, you know, was going back home to Costa Rica or visiting family. And so I love the library. I love the library and I read ferociously. And my favorite book was Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I love that book so much because the main character, Joe, is one of four sisters. And she makes all these sacrifices for her family the one thing she's not willing to do is compromise her dream of being a writer. And even if that means that she has to leave her family and go struggle on her own, she commits to writing. And in the end, she's successful. But that was the thing that really motivated me even as a child. I saw myself in Josephine March. It's taken me years to get back to that truth that I spoke when I was a child. But I firmly am sitting inside of being a creative writer, right? Because I'm trained academically and so I can produce academically, but that doesn't bring me joy. I can do it because it's my training, but it doesn't bring me joy. So I would say that is the first sort of early inspiration. And then I think the second one was when I went to Africa for the first time, which was a junior year abroad trip at Vassar. And I was an English major, one of two students of color in the English department, right? Everybody else went to Africana studies, but I stayed in English and I was there doing Sir Gawain in the night and Latin and all the rest. But then I had a semester abroad in my junior year at Vassar. And it was then that I not only learned how to be inside of my skin, right? Because I was for the first time part of a majority because I went to a university that was a predominantly white institution. But it was also a space where the world wasn't centered around the Americas. And the way that critical thought was circulating or being supported, it was really about local people and the philosophies and the culture that was coming out of Kenya and even the East Coast of Africa, the North. And so it just opened me up to incredible, incredible stories and philosophies and theories and cultures and linguistics and all these different ideas that I had never engaged with before. It wasn't part of my education in the United States. I did not understand the bounty of Africa in so many ways. A non-exploitative 
way, right? Because people have been known about the bounty of Africa for a long time, black gold. We know about that. But I would say that those are the two moments, very pivotal in my life, understanding I wanted to be a writer and then creating a relationship with Africa where I felt not a nostalgia for a motherland and a coming home. It just felt like I could be fully human and present and really committed to the idea of embracing the humanity of people of African descent, wherever they are in the world. And that has been my commitment ever since. So I have two follow-up questions, of course, for me as a bibliophile. I'm like, well, what sort of books do you like to read, right? If Little Women was sort of the entree in terms of you developing as a writer and aligning yourself with the character Joe, then what are some of the other kinds of stories that really pulled you in in a way that goaded you to say, no, I want a writer's life. And then the second is specifically the connection, because, you know, Little Women is in the context of not the continent. Was it a specific place that you ventured to when you were doing this study abroad that really helped to solidify for you that these different countries and locales on the continent, not home in terms of a longing, but home in terms of your humanity? Okay, so two questions. Let me talk about the books. But you know, that could be a 10-hour conversation, I just need to say, because I love books. I do have to say that when I moved to Costa Rica eight years ago, I mailed 28 boxes of books. Like, we came with eight suitcases, but the books had to come. And so I have been slowly rebuilding my library here. So I would say across the board, I love historical fiction. I am not a short story person. I'm not a poetry person. I'm not a play person. I am very clear about that. I'm also trained as a literature professor. And so this is specifically part of my training as an academic. And I would say that historical fiction is the genre that most suits me because I love history. I love sort of putting the pieces together to build a world, right? And then to take a moment of authenticity of something that happened and then to imagine it. And that's kind of what my novel does. So historical fiction and the book that I would say really sparked my thinking about, okay, I could kind of do this was Edridge Dandy Cat's The Farming of Bones. And for me, it's the most beautiful book. And I teach this book all the time, but I loved it because she was able to create this really beautiful, humane, intimate picture, this love story between these two Haitian characters who live in Dominican Republic against the backdrop of the 1937 Parsley Massacre, right? Under the Dominican president, Rafael Trujillo, who essentially ordered his military to murder approximately 15,000 Haitian cane workers in five days. I would say that book really shifted my entire understanding of how you could write lyrically, poetically, intimately, and still use history to authenticate the experience, to imagine it, and that there's always beauty. And that's why I think when I say that, you know, my work is across the board, if it spans anything, it spans slavery, is because I'm always interested in the acts of agency 
by the enslaved, right? And so people just look at numbers and statistics about slavery, but I'm really interested in those tiny little slivers of agency that confirm humanity. I'm not necessarily talking about full acts of rebellion, because that was that too, but I'm talking about even those moments where somebody's in the kitchen grinding that piece of glass in somebody's food for a month's period until somebody, you know what I'm saying? So I'm interested in those particular nuances, the humanity that is involved, that has to be demanded when thinking about this horrific um, historical, and I'm not going to say historical moment, because in many cases, we're still living through the legacy of the transatlantic slave moment. So I would say historical fiction is my thing. I love romance. (laughs) I am definitely a romantic at heart. And so when slavery becomes a lot for me, because I'm committed to it as both an academic and as a historical fiction writer, I love historical romance. So that's kind of my thing too. I read lots and lots of historical romance. And yeah, that brings me a lot of joy as well. And then I think one other book, This is a nonfiction book, Lose Your Mother, Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Trade Route by Saidiya Hartman is a book that really shifted my thinking about the Middle Passage, transatlantic journeys, and the enslaved. And then your second questions in terms of locales and being in Africa. It wasn't even that for me. I think that when I got to Africa, Kenya, let me say that, I've been to, I don't know, 10, 12 African countries. I mean, I've lived in South Africa. I studied in South Africa. I lived in Kenya for a year and a half. Malawi, which is where my in-laws are from. My husband's Malawian-American. And so Zimbabwe, I've moved through many different places. I would say from North Africa, starting from Tunisia, Egypt, and then going down East Africa. I've never been to West Africa yet, but it will come. I would say the locale, what was it in Africa that really made me feel connected? I wasn't defensive about my Blackness, right? I think that there was not the burden of having to defend, explain, or people who wanted me to apologize for being Black. I could just be myself. And so if I didn't have the political defensiveness of being Black all the time in a space where I blended in with everybody, I could then be somebody else, which was my full self, right? So I didn't have to worry about my race. I could just be this young woman at the University of Nairobi and engaging with the space, talking to people, learning Swahili, reading texts and just being exposed to different ideas and without necessarily being judged or the violence of racism in the United States. It was something that was absent. So it was the first time in my life where I had left the United States for a long period of time and where I didn't have that, you know. And I would say that That experience in many cases has been replicated by what has happened here in Costa Rica. I don't feel the burden of having to be defensive about my Blackness. Racism is not something that I have to engage with every day. It's not something that I feel, but it allows me to really embrace my understanding and broaden my understanding of being a Black person and taking up space in the world. I appreciate that a lot. And it helps to contextualize my thinking around my next question too, because, you know, I got to give you a shout out in the sense of just how prolific and gifted you are. Like you are a winner of several fellowships and grants, including Fulbright. But I think that really the beauty of your work is the breadth of your work, as well as the depth in terms of the topics that you focus on, right? Which is a range of issues. 
I mean, you've worked on topics related to female circumcision on the continent, right? And I think that's reflective even in the spaces that you were traversing while on the continent that you had just identified. You know, you talk a lot and you've written extensively and spoken on a lot of public forums about the life and the representation of Sarah Bartman. You've also talked about and written extensively on issues related to race and gender and identity, particularly of Afro-Latinos in the Caribbean. And so for me, I think that your writings bring forth the concern of how the subaltern voice appears or sometimes doesn't appear in both the historical and the cultural narrative, right? And so I think you challenge, you prompt that, you goad your readers and those to really kind of think about, well, why is this voice not here? Or what makes this voice appearing here significant? So for you, why is it important that your work focuses on the representations of the African-descended and Caribbean women of color? You spoke a little bit about humanity, but you know, it's something very specific, particularly around this kind of African diasporic approach that you've definitely have taken in your career thus far. I think for me that there has been a very straight trajectory from the work, as you mentioned, that I did on Sarah Bartman. So in South Africa, some people actually today may commercially know Sarah Bartman as the hot and top Venus the South African woman who was taken from 1810 to 1815 into London and then Paris and exhibited as basically a circus object until she was removed by the courts in London. And then she eventually died in 1815 and Napoleon's surgeon was given her body miraculously and he dissected her. And then essentially a lot of the understandings or a lot of the scientific racism attached to Black women, African women, and their bodies was documented or codified through that particular autopsy and the fact that he then boiled her skin and dissected her body, her brains and genitals, and put it in formaldehyde jars for display in Paris for years, right? Until she was repatriated in 2002 um, back to South Africa. And so Sarah Bartman's story of living in South Africa and thinking about what she meant in South Africa and that actually her story couldn't have existed if she was not a South African or at least an indigenous person of the Khoisan family from South Africa, like it couldn't have happened in any other space or for any other reason. It was essentially her South Africanness that created this particular interest by the British who eventually took her over. For me, very clearly began a conversation or a language around how Black women specifically were hypersexualized, how there's a universal perception that there's a permissiveness in terms of access to Black women's bodies, that Black women don't feel pain. I mean, we have medical apartheid, we have all this language, but for me, it becomes sort of this very accepted, unified, codified legal language that people then use. And so in thinking about Sarah Bartman and thinking about her particular acts of agency, meaning she got up every single day and chose to live another day while she was being displayed and treated so inhumanely in Europe, so far away from home, that's an act of agency. The idea of actually getting up and continuing to live, right? Until she didn't. 
for me, there's a direct line to thinking about enslaved people as they traversed and survived. And I'm putting survived in quotes because when you're thinking about freedom, then survival becomes, has different forms and weights, I think. Sarah Bartman's narrative for me still translates directly to different acts of agency that enslaved people then performed in the Americas. And because my family's from Costa Rica and Panama, I was very, very interested in how does that get represented in Costa Rica, in the colonial space, right? And particularly because they have a Black Madonna here. So I'm very interested in the idea of how it's Black womanhood represented by others and how they represent themselves. And that's really important, like the idea that women of African descent need to be able to represent themselves. So I don't know if that answered your question, but definitely... It's really the idea of looking at agency and creating the space for self-representation, whether you're talking about South Africa, whether you're talking about Costa Rica or Guatemala, Peru, Belize or Trinidad, in terms of people of African descent being able to tell their own narratives and self-represent. And so that's sort of the commitment that I have to my work, to be an actor, right? Not to give anyone space, not to provide space. That's not my job. I'm not doing that. I'm walking along people as they tell their stories, right? I'm in support of and in partnership with. And that makes sense. In the space, whether it's from a historical lens or from a literature framework, that oftentimes these voices, these stories, as spoken from the people themselves, particularly in the topic of, say, slavery, is something that gets lost. So I can see the trajectory in terms of why for you as a writer, you look to the topic of slavery and even specifically currently the legacy of African descendants or Afro-descendants in Latin America, because for the most part, these are subaltern voices that we don't really know about in mainstream. There are so many stories that are out there that are just waiting to be told. And I can see that as part of your own writer's approach to taking the things that you love and are interested in, your own personal and professional commitment to amplifying these particular issues, and then using the context or the situation of slavery and the legacies of it to kind of use as a platform to be able to tease out these stories and voices so that we can all enjoy and engage in ways that, for the most part, they would be otherwise hidden. Absolutely. I think that That's the center of it, right? I mean, in many ways, in chattel slavery, the idea was to convince people that they were not human. They were essentially a piece of property. They were a commodity that could be bought and sold. But, you know, I think of an example of, let's say, women and men who decided, but predominantly women, because that's what comes up in the archive, who decided to jump ship in the Middle Passage when they were on slavers for three or four months at a time. People read that as, you know, these were weak-minded people. It was suicide. It was, you know, an individual act. And they don't see it as rebellion or resistance. And in many ways, we're certainly not glorifying suicide, but in many ways, it was an act of rebellion. A mother threw her child overboard, right? It was an act of resistance because what it does when you can take your own life in that moment is you are absolutely confirming that you are human, right? Which is radically different from how you're being commodified as, you know, whatever, how many pesos you're worth or how many cubes of whatever you're worth. But in many ways, when there's narratives in the slave story about resistance and rebellion, it's usually just around men 
and violence and maybe arms, right? And those are actually the only acts of resistance that are really narrated or found in the archive. And so for me, I think that that's what I'm always looking for. I'm always looking for the space where it's like, we are fully, fully human. We don't have to convince anybody of this, but what we need to do is be able to celebrate and see all the acts of humanity in the middle of all this destruction. The Road. Natasha, your debut novel, Finding La Negrita, is a lovely, lovely read. In fact, reading it, I can easily see the book taking its place among those in the literary canon, alongside Edwidge Danticap, Farming of Bones, and alongside even those books discussing slavery, right? So I'm thinking about Beloved by Toni Morrison, the young adult author Laurie Halsey Anderson's trilogy, Chains and so forth, even Sadiqa Johnson's The Yellow Wife, just to name a few. So without giving too much away, because we want people to go out and read and buy the book, it's set in the 17th century colonial capital of Costa Rica, townships Cartago and La Gotera. During a historical period when slavery was alive and thriving, the reader is introduced to a cast of individuals. We bear witness to a series of events that, in a way, gives insight to the possible origin story of the famous La Nagrita. With your imagination, just based on some of the historical facts that came about in terms of its origin story, right? But of course, it's more than just the origin story of this small statue. Along with great storytelling, and you have an awesome way of developing the plot that had me honestly like rocking in my chair in certain parts, but you provide historical details that feature the interior lives, right? So the thoughts, the feelings, the actions of the characters who are both free and enslaved, not only in body, but also in mind and sometimes in spirit too. So you built a world for the readers that activates the senses. And in many ways, it's a type of time travel. The lives of the enslaved and the free Africans in the Latin American context are nuanced and distinct from those we read about in terms of the colonial African descending experience in the U.S. If I wanted to compare Toni Morrison's Beloved, it feels different. The world-making that Toni Morrison creates for us, it's nuanced and it's distinct from the world that you created for us in Costa Rica. And I think that really speaks to how slavery and the enslaved experiences kind of differ a little bit in terms of the context of who the colonizers were, their approaches to how they engaged those humans that they enslaved and so forth. So my question would be, for you to explain to our listeners, what was the source of inspiration for this book? Why was it important to tell this story? Many years ago, I began having conversations with my mother about Costa Rica 
and blackness in Costa Rica. And my mother's Costa Rican experience, as I said earlier, was that she came from Jamaicans, Afro-Caribbean people who migrated to the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. So this is on the other side, the Pacific side, the Central Valley, where you had an enslaved population and freed population that lived alongside each other for about 200 years, right? And one of the things that we kept talking about was the fact that in the general MEP education system in Costa Rica, the ideas around slavery, I mean, it was like that one paragraph, right? My mom was educated in Costa Rica, but slavery was not part of the discussion. Costa Rica didn't have any direct slave ports. And so people eventually just melted into the populace, right? The numbers were so few that they melted into the populace. But today, in what we know as Guanacaste, which is northwest of the country, if you go to areas of Guanacaste, you listen to the music, you look at the people, you can tell that these are people of African descent, right? From their language, their sensibilities, their religious practices, They don't necessarily know, though, that they are people of African descent, right? So it's not something that they necessarily claim, even though visually, and particularly as a person of African descent, I can identify. I was like, I see you. Because of just the narrative, so they don't necessarily lead in the same way as we would here in the United States with I'm embodying and asserting a Black identity. Interesting. I don't think people are very much aware of that. And that's specific to Latin America. Exactly. In order to be part of the nation, Costa Rica gained its independence in 1821 from the Spanish and slavery didn't end until 1824, three years later. And so I think what happens is the people who then become free and sort of begin marrying indigenous people or whatever, because they didn't necessarily go away, they just got absorbed into the cultural mix that was there. There was the language of nationhood. Right. And so with freedom, you essentially become or join national narratives of becoming a Costa Rican or Tico. And I think that when you go to Guanacaste, they will say that they are like the earliest manifestations of Costa Ricans, but they understand themselves as Costa Ricans. That is very, very clear. So calling themselves something else is not part of their narrative because that wasn't encouraged. Essentially, Costa Rica very much encourages presenting the picture of being this sort of homogeneous space. The hardworking Tico, that's essentially it. You know, you're good Catholics and you have Iberian aspirations, as in Spain, you know, the good mother country. And you're essentially a campesino, you're hardworking and you have family values. And that's essentially the narrative of Costa Rica, which is the Switzerland, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, the Switzerland of Latin America, right? Costa Rica doesn't have an army and it's a very peaceful country. It's self-sustaining. I mean, there are incredible things about Costa Rica and I'm very, very happy to be living my life here, right? Particularly because I've had three generations of family members who have already built into this country and provided legacy life, you know, and everything else. But going back to the question, so in having these conversations with my mother about sort of these absences of a slave history or conversations about, so what happened to all these people? And yeah, slavery existed for 200 years, which was kind of surprising. I wanted to then reconcile this idea of, okay, well, if there's not a conversation about people who were enslaved or people of African descent who lived in colonial times in Costa Rica, how then in 1635 did they begin to venerate a Black Madonna, (laughs) right? The country shuts down. It's a national holiday, and basically there's a pilgrimage to the Basilica where the Black Madonna, or she's called La Negrita, 
or La Virgen de los Ángeles, right? But La Negrita, the little black one, and it's a carving, a little icon of a carving of the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus. And so for me, I was trying to figure that out, right? A country that essentially had Iberian aspirations, how did they then really embrace the little black one, La Negrita? And so that kind of just took me into the archives. I started, you know, doing research and I found a list Costa Rican families, right? Spanish families who owned enslaved people listed next to their cows and their horses, like how many enslaved people they had in Cartago. And for me, that really became sort of like, okay, in thinking about the humanity of these people, right? In thinking about acts of agency and also thinking about the very particular type of slavery that was being performed in Costa Rica, that really inspired me to write this book because you had enslaved people in in the city of colonial Cartago. But then you had sort of this area called La Gotera. And La Gotera literally means like the leak or drop. It was like basically a township. Think about like South Africa during apartheid. So it was like a township. And I wouldn't necessarily say a ghetto, but it was a township where basically freed Afro-descendants and mestizos, like people of mixed race, lived in that area and essentially interacted with the city center in terms of work and being hired out or whatever. But there was essentially like a curfew, right? There was a marker, a line marker, and it was this big cross. It's called the Cruz de Caravaca. And essentially that was the marker where once nighttime came, the people who were freed, who were of color, had to be back in La Gotera, right? And so for me, I was really interested in thinking about, well, who are these free people, right? Because we talk about these narratives of enslavement. We have many slave stories, but I was just thinking about what happens when you are a person who's on the line of freedom, you're a person of color, but across the street from you, your mirror is somebody who's enslaved. And so that really got me thinking about writing this book, as well as thinking about Well, what would happen if the narrative changed and there was an Africanist perspective on how the Black Madonna, La Negrita, was actually created? And so all those things wrapped up together was kind of how I was able to put this together. It took seven years for me of research from the British Library, you know, to the National Library of Costa Rica, to archives from the church in Guatemala, to the National Archive here in Costa Rica. A lot of people are not writing on this, so it took some time. And so historical fiction, which is the second question, I'm coming to that. Historical fiction for me obviously gives the space to do exactly the thing that you said, to build that inner world right? For world building. And it was like, okay, I have facts of actual people who were Spaniards and they owned enslaved people. And it was very clear this is how they made their wealth. They were landowners, et cetera, et cetera. And so I understood what the town looked like. I mean, I've been to Cartago. The main church is now like a ruin and I've been there many times. I've taken photographs there. I've, you know, been in the energy of the space. And so I've been able to literally walk back into that space. And I spent a lot of time looking at maps, like old maps and drawings of the city itself and the different areas in order to then create that inner world. So for me, historical fiction gave me the license by putting together the facts and the data, but then it allowed me to create the characters. Actually, not even create the characters. It allowed me to welcome the characters as they approached me. That's the beauty of the work that 
all those that I mentioned already and yourself are successful in terms of world building and world creating because there is reliance on the history. It makes it very tangible for people to really then appreciate the characters of the lives, because then it comes alive. This is truly what the enslaved experience was. And I think that's the nuance in terms of how you articulated where the free persons and the enslaved persons were almost like mirrors facing each other, which I think is a little bit different in the ways in which we talk about slavery within the United States context. In this story, it's an interesting relationship. Families that owned and enslaved people how they even engage with free persons at the same time that they engaged with those that they enslaved. And that's not to say that the same kind of tropes and stereotypes and the things that we see that exist, that they didn't apply it. Yes, they did. But it's a very interesting relationship between all of these three entities in conversation within a system that's designed to oppress people. I would say as I read your book, I felt like there were three overarching themes. And the first theme I thought about and really kind of sat with was this theme around belonging and longing for home. Home, not only being a place, but also a state of being. And that sometimes in this dance of belonging and longing, in the silences is where you could find joy, but there was a lot of sadness that touched my heart in terms of what the characters themselves grappled with. Then the second theme I pulled from the book is this theme or idea of freedom, but not just freedom for self in the immediacy of we're talking about slavery. So it's all about going from enslaved to a free person, not just freedom like that, also freedom for community choice. And I think earlier when we were talking about humanity, what makes us human is our ability to choose. That's why enslavement is about stripping people of their ability to choose. Then the third theme that I was pulling from was this theme around love and sacrifice. Love in terms of familial love and romantic love and the ways in which people engaged in different acts of sacrifice, which again talks about people's choices, like people are choosing actively. So it's the agency that you're talking about, that these subalterns are able to express when they're coming to you to say, tell my story. What are the lessons or themes you want your readers to take away for themselves? So let me say this, when you were asking and thinking about themes, I just thought, okay, so that's not how it works when you're writing a book. (laughs) And so I had to absolutely put my academic training away and I did not hope for any theme. I literally met these characters. I wrote this book and wrote the story that they asked me to tell. I saw these characters specifically. I know what they look like. I am attached to them very deeply. I love these people and I am very grateful that they showed up on my page. But in terms of like stepping away and then sort of doing this academic, like, okay, these are the bigger themes. I haven't identified any of those. So the ones that you've identified absolutely make sense, particularly the ones around freedom and the ones around home. And it's interesting that you say sadness because I guess there's a deep sadness in there, but I wasn't thinking about sadness. I felt it was an authentic part of the human experience and it was not more than each person could handle. 
each character who showed up in the book, the level of sadness they felt and then had to sort of face that as a challenge. On the other side, there were moments of incredible joy, incredible embodiment of like arrival at something powerful for themselves. I felt that was there. And I think if there was one thing I'd like for readers to take away, one, understand that there were enslaved and free Black people in Costa Rica during the colonial period, and there was not necessarily a plantation cash crop situation happening, which is what, you know, from Brazil, from the sugar, and then thinking about cotton and tobacco in the southern parts of the United States, and then thinking about all the sugar and rice in the Caribbean, right? Understanding that there actually for 200 years lived these people of African descent. Most of them came in small groups through Portobello, which was in Panama, and they moved through the country that way. And then I want people to think and understand love, right? So for me, this is a love story. So it's a love story in so many levels, familial love, love of self, love for finally articulating a voice, right? Loving someone enough to let them go love of art and making beautiful things, all the things that we can create with our hands, and the love of giving a name to a child. So all these things for me really are important. And I guess the last thing would be for readers to understand there's also the love and appreciation for what ancestors do for you. So that's really important to understand the ancestral link, how that's deeply embedded in the genetics of people of African descent. First question, I'm going to go back a little bit and ask you is these characters came to you. So how are they visiting you? And I guess connected to the very last thing you just said about ancestors, do you think that these characters came to you through some ancestral other world, other plane sort of mode of communication? When I think about one sources of inspiration to do certain things or what's the impetus? I think there are certain things that speak or call into our spirit to focus on. And particularly, we see that come about when you're a creative, whether you're creative through music, performance, writing, other forms of artwork. And so you keep talking about these characters arriving, but you're saying that this is a love story and that for people to really pay attention to also the ways in which our ancestors love on us in the present. So do you think that there's a connection in terms of your ancestors helped to inform how these characters came to you? And then how were they coming to you? Were they coming to you like you're by the fountain? You hear whispers like through a dream, you know, and I don't mean to make light of it, but I'm just sort of curious in terms of you love these people. They're real to you. So how did it come about? I tell the story, and it's actually part of the preface in the book about how on a research trip that I took just for five days to Costa Rica to get into the archives when I was still living in New York and starting to do this work. Because at first I thought I was just going to write an academic book on this, right, on thinking about sort of Afro-descendants in colonial Costa Rica. 
I went to visit La Negrita. That was the last part of my trip. This was in 2013. And I went to the Basilica, which is the largest church in Costa Rica, which is where she is housed. And she is now called La Virgen de Los Angeles, which I mentioned. And I went to the Basilica and I went to the altar. And I just remember it was my first time seeing her. I was on my knees and I was at the altar and I was so overcome. And in my mind's eye, I saw many Black people standing on the altar surrounding the statue. So she's in sort of this encased space on like a pedestal. And she's surrounded in gold and there's all this accoutrement. You know, it's a Catholic church, of course. And so there are like all these Black bodies around her. And I had my eyes closed. I was in a meditative state. I realized, I was like, oh, these people want me to tell their story. And what I said before I opened my eyes was that if you open the doors for me, allow everything to be open, to be smooth, I commit to telling your story. And when I kind of opened my eyes, I was still at the altar, I realized I had been crying. And I had no idea how long I had even been there in that space. But it was at that moment that I realized, okay, So I don't necessarily think that those are my particular ancestors from my particular lineage from the Caribbean, but I think that the people who showed up for me as characters could very much be ancestral energies from that particular time period who have a story to be told because I am not a trained writer. And I say this with all humility. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I am trained in teaching literature. I'm trained in teaching writing. But I have never taken a formal class. I don't have an MFA in how to write a novel. I've read hundreds and hundreds of books. I teach books. I know how to analyze them. But the idea of, you know, some writers have the discipline. They get up in the morning, they go for a run, and then they come in, they have their coffee, and they sit at their computer, and they write, or they have their... I don't do any of that. That's not how it worked. You know, I very much was like, okay, some days I'll write two sentences, and if I have a little bit of time after grading some papers, I'm going to do something else. But usually I wrote during my breaks between teaching, so the summer and the winter. Some of it came that way, but really how the characters came to me is that there were just four of them. There are four characters, Dakarai, his daughter Jendai, Esmeralda, who is an enslaved African of the Catholic Church, and Michaela, who is the love interest of Dakarai. Those four characters came to me very quickly, but particularly Dakara, he was very, very strong. He was the one who led, I would say he's the first one who showed up and he very much led the narrative. Um, And I was very interested in what he wanted me to say. Um, And so it's no, I didn't hear whisperings or I didn't dream. (laughs) Literally, I was just writing and I sort of moved out of the way. It's not necessarily an organic process. It wasn't something I documented. It was just like, this is the story that came out. And what's really interesting is that the novel that I wrote, it's not very different. I mean, okay, some verb tense here and there, but it's not very different from the original that I wrote from the first draft to what's being published today. 85%, 90% almost identical to the first draft as it came out that first time. 
And how was it writing a male? It's really interesting that you asked that. I was very anxious because, you know, I've never written any kind of historical fiction or any of that stuff before. So I was really nervous. But I read a little part of it to my husband and he gave me a critique and it's probably easiest for me to get a critique from him, even though, of course, I'm the most sensitive, right? Because he's like the voice that I respect so much and probably the most. He knows my heart. And so he said to me, oh, but that's that's not a real man. The character you're creating, that doesn't sound like the interior world of a real man. You're sort of writing from the perception of like a woman writing a man. A man is much more complex than that. And when he read the final draft, he was like, oh, <laughs> this is a man in all his complexities. And I think that's why I love this character of Dakarai the most. It's not that I don't love the other characters, but Dakarai has a very special place for me. And I do need to acknowledge this. One of the reasons that I love The Farming of Bones so much is that the first line of this book, the first sentence is, his name is Sebastian Onius. And it is then from the perspective of the protagonist who is talking about her lover, this Haitian man who she loves, his name is Sebastian. But the way this beautiful black man who's a cane worker is just completely embraced in his full sensuality, his full personhood, Outside of the fact that he has worked in the cane field so long, he no longer has lines on his palms, right? I mean, these are all these intricacies. And I can remember these parts. But that first line of his name was Sebastian Onius, I was like, oh, everybody's going to fall in love with Sebastian Onius. I fell in love with Sebastian Onius. So for me to have a Dakarai in many ways, it was that same dignity. He showed up in the exact same way for me in terms of a beautiful Black man that I could walk alongside and listen to him as he walked through the complexities, very complex stories and choices that he's made in his life. Absolutely. And I like the evolution that you could even cite to in terms of your own subjectivity of living a life as an African-descended woman, writing about an African man who was enslaved and transported across the Atlantic to Costa Rica, right? And so I appreciate your retelling and kind of consideration around your own personal subjectivities, but then presenting a more objective or a more nuanced presentation of masculinity. I like your point also around the fact that for you, as you were in the Basilica and you were meditating that, part of your prayer was, hey, open the doors. If you want this story to manifest, open the doors and pave a way. And can I tell you, master manifester, because I think there was a way that was paved for you to even acquire the cover art to the book. So for those who are going to be in the bookstores, online, wherever you're going to be, please take a moment to even examine and look at and admire the cover art. It's part of a series of panels of a larger mural by the artist Guadalupe Alvarez Rojas that appears at the Municipal Museum of Cartago in Costa Rica. I want to say that 
the artwork itself captures the essence of the story so well. And just how things aligned in the stars for this artwork that I'm sure this artist, Rojas, was already doing on her own, probably didn't even know that this book was coming. And she's there contracted to do this work for this museum. And meanwhile, here's this book really capturing the essence. So how did you access the artwork? And would you say that's in part one of the most rewarding aspects of writing and bringing forth Finding La Nagrita? It was all an act of serendipity. And I love that word. And it was totally serendipity on how this happened. So my family and I landed in Costa Rica in June 2014. And we were still, you know, exploring. And a local Costa Rican woman who's wonderful, wonderful, somehow maybe on social media, got in touch with me. I don't remember how we connected, but she was like, oh, I live in Cartago. If you want to come and meet me and my husband, I can show you around. I can take you to the Basiligan. I can take you to the Cruz de Caravaca because there's only one Cruz de Caravaca left. A Cruz de Caravaca is essentially a Christian cross, but it has double arms, right? So it's like the T and then another. And so that was used as the marker for the entrance and the exit for La Gotera. She was like, I'll take you. And I imagine that this was probably July, right? So we got there in June. I would say this is in July, 2014. And we met her. We had a lovely day. We even went to the cemetery to look through some of the older graves because I was looking for names to match up with some of the people that I found in the archives. And then, you know, we're New Yorkers, right? So, of course, we're cultured to go into any museum, any art gallery. It's like, okay, we're going to be doing that. And so when we left them, we were like, oh, there's the municipal museum. Let's go in. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's free. You can just enter and walk around. So we walked in and there on the wall, this massive, massive mural of the colonial history of Costa Rica. I don't even know the length, at least the whole sidewalk, right? Like a New York City sidewalk. It was that big. I mean, you needed a ladder to get all the way to the top. But what captured me was this little square panel that had this Black woman, right? So these Black characters, the icon of La Negrita, the Catholic Church, and all these different images circling the icon. And it was the first time I had ever seen anyone authentically racialized in ways that were positive, the colonial history of Costa Rica, right? Without making it just like chains and slave ships and whatever. So this was the first time I had actually even seen in the colonial history of Costa Rica visually brown people, black people, people who were not indigenous, right? And so Took a bunch of pictures that day, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And I did a little research. She's a Costa Rican artist. She does incredible work, and she's still working now. And then we left. But what I didn't realize is how deeply that artwork informed actually the writing of my book. In many ways, that image, it was a catalyst in many ways that my subconscious was working through in order to tell the story of the corners of that whole image. And imagine that image is just a tiny little square in this massive mural, but I very much localized it. And so when my press, Jaded Ibis, 
asked for, you know, a couple of suggestions of a book cover, I actually went to my husband and I was like, okay, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? You know, I need to send a couple of samples of things I might be interested in. And he was like, well, why don't you just use the mural? And I was like, what? Those photographs were in my Blackberry. I am saying, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. Those photographs, (laughs) I had to go deep and find those pictures. But then it was like all the bells went off, right? And sure enough, the image lined up. And then every time everybody saw the image, it was like, oh, that's the story that you're telling from the book. But I didn't do that intentionally. And then I reached out to the artist and I was like, look, I'm writing this book. I'm a black woman. Can I use this image? She was like, yes. And then it was like, Okay, she said yes, but you got to go to the museum and ask permission. And the museum was like, you get permission, but then you also need to go to the mayor (laughs) of Cartago to get permission. And so I had to go to the mayor and then their lawyers had to get in touch with me. Nonetheless, after repeated tries, it was successful. And I have this beautiful cover that very much wraps the entire story in just that image. So the book in many ways is a rendition of the cover, even though that's sort of in retrospect, I understand that. I didn't know that that's what I was doing in the process of writing the story, but certainly I was definitely inspired and processing that image. I just love how art informs art and everything comes full circle. Get Act three where we land. Finding La Nagrita is out this month. Are there book talks coming up? Are there tours? And maybe it's too premature, but what can we expect from you in terms of a sophomore release? Hmm. Hmm. The pressure is on. (laughs) Okay. Yes, it's very exciting. I will be in New York. My actual U.S. book launch will be hosted at the Brooklyn Museum of Art in Brooklyn, New York on Saturday, October 1st at 6 p.m. in the auditorium on the third floor of the museum. The discussant will be young adult award-winning writer Tanya Cherie Hegeman, and there will be a book signing after at the museum. So that will be the U.S. launch on October 1st, and it is part of the Brooklyn Museum's first Saturday programming to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. And then I also have a very big virtual event for folks who cannot attend the New York launch on October 13th, hosted by the Afro-Latino Forum. It's free and open, and there is an RSVP for both that event, as well as for the Brooklyn Museum event that will be available at some point in September and will be available on my website and on social media spaces. So you can find me at Natasha Gordon Chippenberry, my whole name on Instagram. And that is also my website. And there will be some events in Boston in early December. And then a couple more book talks as we go along, but all that will be updated on the website regularly. And in terms of a sophomoric release, yes, I have already started. The book will be called Naomi. I will be writing a very, very loose, as in very loose, rendering of my great-great-grandmother Ruth's 
life story. She was a Jamaican woman who moved to Puerto Limón on the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica in 1910. I will be writing about Puerto Limón in the 1930s and 1940s under the United Fruit Company and the UNIA and Marcus Garvey. So that is the world building that I am focusing on right now. I wanted more. So I'm like, where else can I pick up more from this very gifted writer? And so I'm looking forward to reading Naomi when she's out. But until then, folks, please make sure that you get your copy of Finding La Negrita by Natasha Gordon Chippenberry. And thank you so much for joining us here and sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.